Welcome to the Wealth Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, John Lawson, Senior Wealth Advisor at Asante Capital Management and Sauna Family Office. We're always looking for unique ways to educate our client families and be introduced to new clients. At Sauna Family Office, we help business owners and affluent families navigate the complexities of wealth through a variety of wealth management and family enterprise oversight services. Today, we are speaking with Kevin McSweeney, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager with CI Global Asset Management and Head of Canadian Equities. Kevin began his financial services career in 2000 and has a broad experience from credit risk management to real assets such as infrastructure and real estate to both global and domestic expertise. This, along with being an award-winning manager, makes Kevin the ideal guest to update us on current market situations and what he sees in store for us. Welcome, Kevin, and thanks for being our guest today, uh, and especially taking the time from uh, your uh, cabin in Muskoka. Uh, thanks so much, John. Appreciate it and appreciate the time. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad we could connect. So uh, with today, we wanted to focus more on the looking forward, but it's always great to have an understanding on what happened uh, in recent history and what's put us where we're at. Can you bring us up to speed? Yeah, sure. I think, um, you know, maybe three or four years ago, we would have started kind of the modern history of finance or where the backdrop for, for the market framework or regime was with the global financial crisis in 08. I think we've had a full reset of that. That's still, you know, has some lingering effects, certainly. Um, but I think I would take it back probably to COVID is where we've seen sort of a paradigm shift and where people can kind of say, okay, this marks the beginning of a big change. You know, during COVID, it was very much, um, we needed to print money. We needed to make sure that, you know, you could shut down the economy or you could shut down people mingling and they would still be able to, you know, pay their rent, uh, eat, uh, keep their employees or keep their rent paid, all of that stuff. And so that led to a lot of money, essentially money printing. There's some debate in amongst the academics whether we should call it money printing, but for all intents and purposes, uh, it was. So that that sets the stage. That has led to the inflation that we're seeing here. Now, certainly... Um, a couple other things. I mean, that also created the meme stocks. You know, a lot of people had some money on their hands that didn't have much to do. And so I think you saw a reset, which you periodically do throughout history, whether it be from, you know, Dutch tulip bulbs 600 years, 500 years ago, or whether it be to, you know, dot-com stocks in 2000, where people are buying stocks, you know, unanchored by the fundamental performance or expectations for the actual cash flows of that stock. So we still have some of that cycling its way through the system. We have supply chain disruptions, uh, which have more or less resolved themselves. You're seeing, you know, freight rates are falling, inventories are being restocked, trade is, is stabilized around the world. But that supply chain disruption certainly created a lot of inflation over the last couple of years. The number one dominant thing that we're all we're all thinking about is inflation and the follow-on impact of interest rates. That supply chain is still working its way through. Maybe some things we have excess inventory, some things we're a little tight on. And so that's where we're at, creating the inflation that we're all dealing with. And then that supply chain is related to, but it's exacerbated by some of the geopolitical items that are, you know, are long-term questions with short-term eruptions. 
I think one huge item that, that the capital markets haven't quite come to terms with is how big the dislocation between North America and China is going to be. For so long, we had outsourcing of manufacturing there. That was a very disinflationary impulse. Chinese wages are a lot lower than North American wages. And so you were getting things made cheaply and ever cheaper all through kind of the 90s to the 2000 teens. Um, that's changing. And so we're rebuilding over here and we're trying to create a manufacturing, uh, an enhanced manufacturing base in North America with nearshoring, onshoring, friendshoring, whatever you want to call it. That's an inflationary force because it's creating a lot of demand. And then when you throw in the fact that, you know, one of the world's largest fertilizer, wheat, steel uh, manufacturers was invaded by somebody who makes a lot of that as well. Yeah, I'm speaking of Ukraine on the first. And then somebody who's, you know, a huge powerhouse in those items, plus oil and, and gas, Russia, that dislocation has exacerbated the inflationary uh, pressures that were coming out of COVID anyways. So that's kind of where we're at. And so for, you know, 2020 and 2021, where we had a really weak economy and a really strong stock market and good bond markets as well, we transitioned into 2022 where we had a pretty good economy, pretty good performance, but we had some really weak stock markets. And I think those are sort of the mirror image of each other. And now in 2023, you're seeing again, some, some reversals of both of those, which, which we can get into more, but that's where, that's where, where I think we are is the fallout from things that have been happening over the last one to two years, two, one to three years, pardon me. Yep. Yep, makes complete sense. And I think most people are up to speed with that, but it's always good to set the uh, set the stage. Um, so looking a, a, a looking more at this year and now starting to uh, set our sights forward, can you mm -hmm. talk about the uh, performance of Canadian equities versus global markets this year? And yeah. maybe as an add-on to that, do you think Canada is due for a bit of a catch-up versus global? I think Canada is absolutely undervalued and is very much due for a catch-up versus other markets. I actually, um, you know, to the extent that, you know, we have an option to invest more in Canada versus the U.S. or overseas, we are what we call overweight Canada, where we're investing more in Canada than you might expect based on the benchmarks versus which we manage. Currently in Canada, um, you have a really solid valuation backdrop where Canadian stocks are cheap. One of the things we use to measure valuation is what's called the price-earnings ratio or PE ratio. Um, and that's, you know, how much is a stock trading at versus how much in earnings is it generating. Right now in Canada, that's about 14 times. And so when we say that, it means that if you're putting $100 into the Canadian stock market, you're gonna get about $7 of earnings back in that year. Now you expect that will grow over time because corporate profits tend to grow. So seven bucks for every hundred uh, put into the Canadian market. In the US market, we have a PE ratio of, of 20 times. And what that means is that for every hundred dollars you put into the US market, you're getting about $5 back in earnings. I don't think that the performance or the quality uh, or the future earnings path of Canadian stocks is so much worse uh, than the US, it's 40%. That's a valuation differential of 40%. Uh, 
you know, two bucks more on five means that you're getting a lot more bang for your buck in Canada. We have challenges in Canada, no question. We have trouble getting things built. Taxes are, are probably too high for if we were just to say we want to maximize our economic growth. There's a variety of other things. But those, those things are shared around the world as well. You know, the U.S. has trouble getting large projects built. They have political dysfunction, which you just saw a downgrade by one of the world's major rating agencies of the U.S. last year, or pardon me, a couple of days ago. So I think that the valuation differential in Canada should close to the U.S. Hopefully that closes because Canadian stocks, you know, get more expensive or they deliver higher earnings. They either have a higher valuation or the earnings themselves grow by a lot. But as of right now, you know, when the TSX is returning about 6.3% versus the S&P 500, you know, up about 18% this year, we're due for a catch up. And no, the TSX did better last, a lot better than the US stock markets last year, but we still ended up being cheaper. I'll just say one thing, you know, I referenced the meme stocks and, and you know, some non-fundamental buying in the previous item. What's really happened between Canadian stock markets and US stock markets, if you were to just buy one share in each uh, stock in each company that's in the indices, there's not a really big difference. The median stock market, the median stock in the U.S. has returned only about eight uh, percent. In Canada, the median stock has returned about seven percent. So the smaller stocks in Canada have done better than the bigger stocks, whereas in the U.S., the bigger stocks have done better than the smaller stocks. So things like Microsoft, a microchip, a, a chip maker like uh, Nvidia, Apple, some of these tech that are huge behemoths have done really well, whereas in Canada, some of the companies that are doing well and benefiting from some earnings growth or, or valuation expansion on the stock side just happen to be the smaller ones that make the uh, stock market in aggregate not go up as much. The banks have been hit. The energy companies have been hit. That's close to, that's about 45% of our market that is that is just not performing well. So it's it's not as bad underneath when you look into it. But even in aggregate, uh, I do think Canada has some catching up to do, and and I'm investing that way. Yeah, and so what you're you're really saying is that there's a a smaller number of large companies in the U.S. that are skewing those returns currently, and that's happened a fair amount in the past. Uh, you you just have to make sure you're if you're chasing that, which you shouldn't chase. But yeah, uh, yeah. the uh, the 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 caveat is you got to get the right companies. And they're not always the same. <laughs> you know what, it, what? What historically happens over and over and over again, when you have a big regime change, like we talked about, you know, moving from a post-financial crisis to a post-COVID set of economic and market circumstances, the companies that led in the last um, uh, rally do not tend to lead in the next rally. I think a lot of it, we call it the brother-in-law syndrome. Where you know you go to a family reunion and your brother-in-law, I'm sure many of your listeners have this, or they are brothers-in-law. Um, they go and they hear some story about crypto or weed or uh, in, you know uh, a crazy tech firm. I just made 50% on it, and they're like, "Well, I'd like to make 50% as well." Problem is, the people selling to you have already made 50%, so it's it's more expensive, and you're more likely to be buying at the top. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the so. 
if if we uh, kind of play off of what you were just talking about, uh, so there you think there's lots of opportunity for Canadian um, companies to catch up. What yeah. industries um, are you and your teams uh, finding? Where are they finding the most value right now? Sure, there's one that that's um, you know a big industry and one that's a little more of a niche. The big industry that people are completely discounting right now are the Canadian banks. Yeah. You know, the Canadian banks are trading, you know, I said that the Canadian market is trading at about a 14 times price to earnings ratio. The Canadian banks are trading on average around 10. Now, that means for, you know, again, every $100 you put into the Canadian banks, you're getting about $10 of earnings back. That's pretty darn good. Like that is a really good item. You have to really be thinking that Canada is headed into some really bad um, loan losses or that the banks will not be able to create mortgages or, or you have to have some sort of earnings or they'll invest really poorly in, in some bad businesses. That has not historically been the case. You know, you're sitting with some of these stocks paying out a 6% dividend yield. That's cash right in your pocket. And then they're keeping, you know, 4% uh, or, you know, more on in the way that we think of it in terms of return on equity, they're keeping even more than that to reinvest in the business or to make sure they have buffer in their capital in case losses tend to tend to go up. Fundamentally, it is great to be investing when people are scared. When people are scared and they're already thinking about this, you know, people will look and they'll say, oh, my house was worth you know, $1.2 million. And now, you know, the neighbors down the street, which is the same, only went for a million. Again, we're Toronto and BC centric here. So uh, adjust accordingly across the country. But you know what? All of those things through the 2016, all of the regulations that the government brought in that said, you have to put more on your down payment. You can't take as much money out of your home equity line of credit. You, Mr. Banker, need to make sure that they can withstand an extra two or three hundred, two or three percent higher on their mortgage. Those things made it safe. So I think that the possibility that Canadian consumers or homeowners default to such an extent that the bank's profitability is at risk, or they're going to have a bunch of defaulted loans that they have to wear and they don't make any money on, or they lose money on, that is very overrated by the market. That is a scary prospect. And people, you know, it's an evolutionary uh, instinct that we have to, at the first sight of fear, to run. But that's left to these banks trading at, at really, really good valuations. They're better franchises than the U.S., but they trade cheaper. And the Canadian consumer is going to stop going out to eat. They're going to stop buying discretionary items, but they're not going to stop paying their loans. And even if they do, there's enough equity in those homes uh, that the banks won't be the ones eating it. So that's number one. And that's a huge market. Uh, that's a huge piece of the market. And that fear has led to the, you know, the uh, underperformance, but also the valuation opportunity. The next one that we've been really interested in, and, and I'll give kudos to the research team, which is broad and deep here at CI Global Asset Management, is engineering and construction. Now, I referenced earlier the building opportunity that's happening in North America with onshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, where the U.S. tries to decouple from China and has to invest a ton into, into rebuilding its plant. You saw amazing growth in last week's GDP figures in the U.S. where they're just investing 
they're building factories, they're building grid, they're building power plants. What we have, you know, whether it be in our equity alpha pool or select Canadian equity, a variety of other funds, you know, our companies like Stantec, a good Western Canadian name, uh, WSP, which is an engineering and construction services company out of Montreal, a couple US names like uh, we've owned Quanta and, and Mastec. We're underinvested, and we also underinvested in engineering uh, know how or intellectual capability. And so those companies that could come in and say, hey, we're going to design the grid, the electrical grid of the future. Hey, we're going to help you manage your waterways or your water treatment plant. Things like that, as you ramp investment from government initiatives or even from corporate initiatives, I think those engineering and construction services companies uh, have a really good chance to build their revenue, build their backlog, and take a lot of margin, do some increased margin uh, on those projects that are coming through. So one big industry, one sort of, it's not tiny, but it's a little more niche that people don't think of that, that we're pretty bulled up on. Those stocks have run a little bit, so we're kind of looking at earnings results some of them this week uh, to make sure that that we haven't gotten ahead of ourselves, but it's been a nice contributor to performance. Nice, thanks. And that's uh, it's uh, obviously there's more than just that out there, but those are uh, oh yeah two really really good examples. Thanks for that. Um, so let's let's shift a little bit here. Um, one of the big things when you're talking about what people worry about, uh, and that is uh, um, interest rates. Uh, yep. And so the big question, uh, and we expect an exact and perfect answer from you. Uh, Got it. It's dead uh, accurate. I'll give you a point. How many, how many decimal points would you like, John? <laughs> What's your outlook on interest rates and uh, how will whatever interest rates do affect investments and yep. the Canadian consumer, which ultimately affects uh, investments as well? Yeah, um, we think they stay high. I think they stay high. We actually have a, I, I, I want to point out, we have a bit of a robust debate within the group. You know, I'm, I'm here with you know, a multitude of investment professionals, bond managers, equity managers, global, real estate, you know, emerging market. And we have a debate. So I'll say that um, what I'm about to give you is, is my, my informed view. And we have some other people who are, um, uh, would, would, you know, would have some nuances, nothing, nothing crazy. But one of the things I enjoy about this job and about this organization is the ability to debate. Uh, nobody has a, apart from me, when I give you my point estimate for interest rates, nobody knows the future. Um, I think they're going to stay high. I think uh, in aggregate, I have more confidence in the United States for that happening. Um, but I have confidence that we're not going to have broad-based interest rate cuts, you know, by the end of the year. Uh, the bond market has been waiting around. You know, inflation has fallen. Interest rates tend to get raised when the ba central banks, the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada or Bank of Japan, wants to tamp down demand in the economy, such that prices can fall or stop rising at as high a rate. The main driver of inflation has been wages, has been labor. And you know, part of that was, was the support and the liquidity and the savings that people had coming out of COVID, right? You had excess savings. You know, for CERB, you had people saying, well, I, 
you know, can stay here and make $2,000 a month. And I need higher than that to, to, to make me work. That's gone. That's dissipated. But one of the underrated things that, that we're seeing is just demographics. People are retiring. And, and it's, there's some very good economists, one's uh, out of India, one's out of the LSE, um, who've posited that all of the help that you know, China and India and other emerging markets have had by bringing new workers into the world basically was a positive labor supply shock. They actually pushed wages down, which pushes inflation down. We've already integrated them into the economy, but in developed markets like Canada, like the US, what you're seeing is just simple demographics with um, simple demographics with people who are retiring. And when people retire, they stop providing 100% of their labor, right? They're just, you know, they're not, they're not in the, in the uh, economy anymore. They're not in the labor pool, but they're still demanding labor. And they might even be demanding more labor from healthcare services or from travel or, or things like that. So it's actually... You know, I was an economist with Finance Canada, and we always speak, I still think, in supply and demand curves. We've reduced the supply of labor, and we've increased the demand for labor, which just means that price has to adjust up. With that, I think we have a persistent support for inflation. And when we have that persistent support for inflation, we're just going to persistently have higher interest rates along the way, because if we were to drop the interest rates too much, I think that that would spur too much demand. People would be back to variable rate mortgages, taking money out of their houses, borrowing more and creating too much demand into a red hot economy. So I think we're almost done. I do think Canada, you're seeing already in the StatsCan economic accounts that people are having to divert from some of their more discretionary spend into paying mortgage, higher mortgage interest. That's taking a bit of time to roll through. Um, so I think that Canada is much, much uh, more favorably set up for interest rate cuts than the US, uh, where a 30-year mortgage, you can sit on your mortgage for 30 years at 2.8% for some of them, right? Like that's amazing. And so you're impervious to those interest rate pressures. In Canada, because of the five-year and, and shorter uh, average mortgage term, You'll, you'll see spending uh, uh, hit a lot quicker than in the US. So even though our demographics are a little bit more favorable because of immigration, you'll, you'll, you'll have a better interest rate outlook here. But I still think that, you know, don't, don't expect to go back to those sort of 1.6% variable rate mortgages or 2% fixed for five years. That's just not happening given the backdrop that we're in. Okay, and then so just to add on to that, uh, and and I caveat totally understand uh, this is crystal ball gazing, but uh, as yeah. you look at this, uh, and we're moving forward, uh, do you you think we're almost at that terminal rate? Uh, yeah. that, that yeah. just yeah. terminal rate meaning the highest point that uh, uh, they have to Bank of Canada has to go to. Um, if you were looking out then you said not this year for cuts would you suggest that maybe q1 q2 next year uh are you thinking longer yeah i yeah i'd say i'd say i'd say we'll be done the hikes this year certainly 
Um, we, we have to be. And, and by the way, one other thing, you know, the Canadian currency is up a little bit over the last five, four months, which helps inflation because our import prices are, are lower as well. And we're a very open trade economy. So every time the Canadian dollar goes up, uh, that's helpful to inflation, which is helpful to interest rates going down. I'm thinking at some point next year, the Bank of Canada will be comfortable that their rate can come down. Um, that, that yeah, that their rate can come down because the economy is below, you know, uh, running at its max, and because inflationary pressures are visibly um, are have visibly lessened. I mean, don't forget, it's easier, you know, if you had, a, I don't know, this this patio chair, uh, you know, was a hundred bucks uh, last year, and it's a hundred and ten bucks this year. You know, you had ten percent inflation. Look, it's not going to go up to one hundred and twenty-one dollars. You know, so inflation slowing doesn't mean that prices are coming down. It's just it's harder to get ten percent inflation because of affordability. The higher the prices are, you know, everything, you know, if something's gone from one hundred to one hundred and ten, it's it's harder to go from 110 to 121 than it was to do that first move. So inflation will be cooling. I, I think, yeah, if I if I had to do a point estimate, I would say middle of next year is when we really see it, because that's when we've had enough mortgages rolling off to really cool the economy and spending. Right. Okay, good. And uh, mm -hmm. to your point, uh, the... Uh, uh, the fix for higher prices is typically higher prices uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. it stops people from demanding it and therefore the mm -hmm. demand uh, goes down, right? Absolutely. Uh, you, you also made the uh, comment and a good segue in there that uh, part of what's helped uh, uh, lowering um, uh, inflation for us is our higher Canadian dollar. Uh, yep. Yet, if if we stop raising interest rates and U.S. continues, is that going to reverse, or or what do you see for the Canadian dollar? Sure, it's it's a it's a decidedly hedged answer, John. We actually think of we think the Canadian dollar is in a range. Um, I don't think it's going to move huge, you know, towards parity like we had maybe in 2014 or in 2007 and a bit of 2008. You know, I don't think we're going to get to dollar equivalent. Um, I also don't think that the U.S. dollar is going to have a huge spike where we sort of fall to 65 or 64 cents on the dollar, like in the early 2000s or came close to that uh, during the pandemic or the financial crisis. Canadian dollar is driven by, you know, kind of two things versus the U.S. dollar. It's how much are uh, how much are interest rates different between Canada and the U.S.? Um, so if all things being equal, Canadian interest rates are higher, people will put more money here and, and the Canadian dollar will go up. I don't think we're going to be particularly um, different than the U.S. If anything, the U.S. will be a little bit higher, but that's mostly priced in. The U.S. dollar will be. And the other thing is uh, commodity prices. You know, Canada, you know, we've evolved and we have a number of good stories in technology and services and, and other industries. But by and large, our economy is still more so than most, a commodity-dependent economy. So if energy is going to rally, um, then the Canadian dollar will go up, not only because people are buying Canadian dollars by buying Canadian energy, but also they might be investing more in the in the oil patch or, or gas, uh, gas areas as well. 
I don't think that I think commodity prices are well supported in here. You know, this morning, Saudi Arabia announced that they were going to, you know, extend their cuts. So I think oil around 80 bucks is very fair, which makes me like energy stocks on balance. Um, but I know that if it goes above 90, that Saudi Arabia will bring some new uh, supply back on and that inhibits investments. So we won't get those big investment flows. Um, but I also know we're not going to fall uh, that far back down. Um, you know, copper is well supported at, at today's prices. You know, gold's a bit of a wild card, but energy is. I think that the Canadian dollar, you should expect it to be trading, I don't know, between 72 and 80 cents is, is the way we think about it. And we will hedge that. You know, we will take more Canadian dollar exposure if we think it's cheap, and we'll take less Canadian dollar exposure if we think it's expensive. So we have a very active uh, currency group to protect it, but we don't think there's going to be big moves. Actually, one other thing I'll, I'll mention, because it's important to the way we think and the way the markets operate, when the markets get you know, in a risk-off mode, they get scared, people are selling stocks, people are looking for safety, uh, the U.S. dollar tends to do fairly well. I think... If the U.S. stock market goes for a bit of a rollover here, and, and I do think the valuation is stretched down there, um, then you might see a bit of a bid for the U.S. dollar where people say, I just want a U.S. treasury or I want to put my money into the U.S. dollar because it's very safe. Um, that That's part of the, whether you want to say that it's a support for the U.S. dollar or whether it's a cap for the Canadian dollar, uh, either way it works, but range bound with with all of those caveats and all of those factors embedded in the uh in what's not what doesn't sound like a very decisive call <laughs> well all those caveats and uh, everything and there you ought to see our legal part after uh after the podcast yeah, that's <laughs> right yeah this is not investment yeah yeah these are things that i like uh these are things that they could change tomorrow we could buy or sell it i should probably get my own shouldn't i john uh yeah no it's it's well covered believe me um, thank you so uh, uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, fixed income. Um, yeah. You know, we, we tend to think more about Canada, but if you want to throw in uh, others, that's fine too. What, what do you think about uh, bonds? Well, happily, you're getting paid now, right? I mean, it used to be <laughs> yes. that you were, you were asymmetric and, you know, people that were, um, you know, I mean, people were, People were receiving, I always joke, people were receiving 1% on their money to lend to, to pick your political persuasion, 1% uh, to lend to Donald Trump or 1% to lend to Justin Trudeau, right? I think it, whatever side of the political spectrum, I, I was actually uncomfortable lending to either of them at 1%, but uh, whatever the side of the political spectrum you're on, one of those should make you uncomfortable. Um, right now, you're looking at short-term interest rates being up around 5%. Um, you're looking at sort of the longer term, whether it be, uh, you know, a 10-year bond that provides 4% uh, income or even a 30-year bond, again, which is a little lower, more in the high threes, mid to high threes right now. It's going up today. Um, there's two opportunities in fixed income. On the short end, you actually have a chance to get carry. So for those of your clients or for those listening that are in balance strategies, Last year, we had to reprice those bonds to give a higher yield. And if you have a 1% coupon bond uh, that's out for 10 years, let's say, if you actually say, well, I now want to get 2% to lend to the Canadian government for 10 years, 
or three or four and you can keep it going. I actually, I can't change the coupon on that bond. What I have to do is I have to change the price. So I have to take it down to about 93 cents on the dollar and your yield will be 2% as you pick up a little bit more because your 1% coupons divided by 93 instead of 100 and you'll get about you know, 75, uh, uh, 75 one hundredths of a percent each year as you get back to 100. That is a return opportunity um, in there. So that's what happened last year. Pardon me, I, I, I meandered a little bit there. You can get in the short end, you're getting about 5%, right? You're getting 4% on the 10 year, you're getting 5% on the two year um, because of those higher interest rates from the central banks. That's that's nice. You will not have a headwind the way you did last year, where both your equities, we don't think, where both your equities and your bonds will go down because bonds have repriced to about a fair value. So that's pretty good that you're going to make some money on your bonds this year, or you have a much bigger cushion than you did at the beginning of 2022. More importantly, and I'm sure, John, you, you have these discussions all the time. I can think about it cerebrally, whereas you know, you're sitting in front of people who are you know, thinking that everything is great um, and why aren't we just in stocks? When you have bonds that are a higher interest rate, when those interest rate cuts happen, if the economy goes sideways, you can think of it as a portfolio insurance uh, aspect. If your 30-year bond, you know, goes from yielding three and a half percent and we're scared about the economy, so we're going to cut interest rates and that yield goes to say, uh, 3%, so from 3.5 to 3% because of central bank interest rate cuts, you're going to pick up about 10, 12, I'm doing the math in my head right now, but you'll probably pick up about 12% or uh, gain price gains because what we did was we reversed 2022 where many bonds lost 12%. So I think the opportunity in fixed income is not only that you know, you'll you'll get a little bit more interest income along the way. It's that your entire portfolio, that your entire plan is protected in the event something goes wrong. And so you can just feel more confident investing in there. I will say in Canadian fixed income as well, the backup in interest rates has produced some phenomenal deals in Canadian corporate credit. You can get an eight and a half percent preferred uh, share in a Canadian bank. That doesn't matter what the Canadian bank's profitability is relative to expectations. As long as they keep paying their preferred share dividends, which are riskier than debt, but less risky than equity, uh, you can be getting an eight and a half percent dividend. So we've at CI have been, I think that's really good. You know, an eight and a half percent return in betting that CIBC or Royal Bank will continue to pay a dividend. I think that is phenomenal. I think that is way too much fear being priced into a non-equity. And so we've been pretty substantial buyers of those uh, of those instruments, particularly in income-oriented portfolios. Great. Good recap. Thank you. Um, so maybe let's just touch on uh, before we wrap up. Uh, uh, and we haven't talked much. We've talked mainly Canada uh, versus U.S., but uh, yep. let's venture outside of there and uh, opportunities or issues elsewhere in the world. Yeah, um, you know, one of the ones I was just speaking with uh, one of my uh, a very you know smart colleague of mine this morning about Japan. 
Uh, Japan is changing. They've been a country that's been, you know, sleepy and deflationary, and their central bank has kept rates really low, which has, you know, kind of stopped them from having deflation, but also stopped their banks from making any money and stopped, you know, and made people really worry about the path of, of the yen. Um, that's changed because the central bank is not going to exert as much pressure on on interest rates over there. As well, there are some more people getting involved in Japanese equities. Uh, Warren Buffett, you know, Berkshire Hathaway has just bought a pile of Japanese equities, uh, believing that some corporate reform and some new investment can can work. So a little bit more excited about Japan. I would say Europe still has challenges. There are pockets of things we love uh, in Europe. I love infrastructure, toll roads, airports, things like that over there, um, partially because of the, the services, vacation economy over there, partially because I think that you know Europe has a number of demographic um, and long-term uh, structural productivity problems that will keep interest rates lower so I think they have an opportunity, particularly in some of their global companies, you know, say a Louis Vuitton or a Nestle or a, a Unilever, companies like that that happen to be based in Europe, but uh, but tend to be kind of global brands. We see a lot of opportunity over there as well, as well as in some of the utilities. Um, they're very strongly introducing carbon pricing over there, um, and that's unfortunately keeping the price of power high. Uh, but it allows for people that have power generation right now to be charging more and making more money on on legacy assets. Um, so that, that's pretty good. So Europe, I, a little more skeptical on. Um, and then actually Mexico is is another area where I think it will benefit from the U.S. moving along. Emerging markets were, uh, in my funds, I'm not as focused on it. I think it's a long-term buy, but in the short term, it's probably... Um, it's a China bet, which has had a little bit of disappointment uh, coming out of uh, coming out of uh, their own sort of later COVID recovery. Mm -hmm. Okay, outstanding. Thank you. So maybe just to 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 wrap up, can you summarize uh, your level? Oh my goodness, I can't talk. <laughs> can you <laughs> summarize your level of optimism? Um, uh, or pessimism, uh, yeah. but uh, sounds a little more optimistic uh, for that short, medium, and long-term uh, outlook. Yeah, I, I I am an optimist. I think you know humanity is humanity so far has been you know, I don't know you can go back to the bubonic plague or the dark ages or you can go all the way through the Cold War or you know um, whatever colonialization. Pick any sort of plague. The arc of the arc of stuff is towards progress and towards the economy growing. Now, demographics are a little different in 2023 than they have been throughout history, which is a headwind. But in general, profits go up. People are motivated to make money. And we haven't really, you know, we've developed different ways to communicate. We've developed different ways to travel, but we haven't really changed human nature. So that profit motive that was, you know, making the East India Company or making you know, um, the railroads in the 1800s in the U.S. go after profit is is the same motivation and is likely to continue to drive profit growth uh, across things. I'll I'll remind listeners, I've, I've you know, you know, 2022 was a very challenging year. You know, you had the Ukrainian war, you had um, you had inflation, you had you still had Omicron coming into 2022. But I wrote this in the 2023 preview that since the beginning of uh, the millennium, since 2000, 
The Canadian stock market has had had to deal with a commodity collapse. It's had to deal with the dot-com collapse, which is particularly egregious on Nortel, the global financial crisis, the collapse of oil, um, interest rate hikes. Um, you know, remember the pigs, um, you know, uh, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain uh, joined. It's not like we haven't been without challenges, but over that time, the Canadian stock market has only fallen two years in a row once which was back in the early 2000s. You know, even when we were going through an energy problem in the mid-teens, uh, you had you, you didn't fall two years in a row. Even during the pigs crisis, even during the financial crisis, we didn't fall two years in a row. And so these things have an ability to sort of arc towards the long-term that if you're down in this year, you have a better than, than even opportunity of, of bouncing back uh, in the next year, corporations will adjust their profits or they'll invest in new businesses. They'll move around. This, this is dynamic profit-motivated uh, institutions. And so I think this year, you, you're seeing a lot of opportunity open up. You're seeing some rebound. Uh, maybe in some things, they've rebounded a little stronger than they should. Then that'll work itself out. And some things like Canada have rebounded a little bit less than they should. But I think that's going to work itself out. And I don't see any impediment from this point to Canadian stock markets and probably global stock markets with a little less conviction or a little less um, uh, force continuing to deliver on sort of the long-term returns that you, me, you know, my friends, your clients have all expected. So I am a... Uh, if uh, if my long-term optimism has to be made up of just a series of short-term and medium-term optimisms, then I think I'll just put myself in that optimistic camp. And if the price falls, then I'm just a little bit more optimistic about the next uh, the next set of returns that are coming around the corner. Very well said. Very well said. I I often talk about uh, uh, the the issues of extrapolation. Uh, oh yeah, and so people get wrapped up in yesterday's news uh, about how bad things were and they extrapolate that out that it's going to be like that uh, forever uh, completely ignoring the value and the opportunity that are there and, so, and the reaction function as well right yes. like people when things are going off the rails somebody's uh, uh, sorry john I'll, I'll interrupt i thought the funniest thing about this week was that when the Fitch downgrade happened, you saw U.S. stock markets fall by about 2%, a little bit more on the NASDAQ, a little bit less on others. Fitch downgraded the U.S. because of political instability, uncertainty, and dysfunction. Who wasn't aware of that the day before, right? Like, who actually was making an investment case based on U.S. Um, political certainty and functionality, and so it's. Uh, anyways, that was that was one of my favorite parts of this week. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll uh, I'll, I'll tell you this, and I've said uh, used this uh, uh, example many many times, um, and and this doesn't happen often, so it's a bit of a a, a dream example. But if I yeah. go out and uh, and my golf round and I par the first two holes. <laughs> I am not thinking that that means I am shooting par on this round because there is a reversion to mean. And I'm typically about 18 uh, over or something like that. So, uh, uh, yeah, there's a lost ball. There's a slice coming. <laughs>
<laughs> That's right. So, uh, yeah, this uh, all that to say that uh, I, I do know and it's the emotions and it's what we as advisors deal with every day. It is separating out those emotions, oh. going back to uh, uh, why we have a uh, portfolio uh, and it's diversified. Uh, there's all sorts of different reasons for it put in. And no, we're not going to hit home runs every day. Uh, it just doesn't work. But to your point, which is so true, widen your lens. Look past uh, yesterday or today or this month or this year. Uh, the optimism for a longer term range is amazing and so right. uh, that's how we have we have to keep refocusing ourselves so that we don't get caught up in uh, uh, what Nick Murray refers to as the apocalypse du jour uh, you know it's every yeah. day yeah. something you can read the newspapers and something's going wrong in the world and therefore huh. we should panic and it's going to end um, you know there's a there's a line I use it's by a philosopher um and humanity needs to be reminded more than it needs to be taught. Like yeah. you, you already got taught all these things. You just need to be kind of reminded of them. That's probably, uh, that's probably that's your role. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, thank you so much. Uh, I really yeah. appreciate your insight. I've always enjoyed uh, talking to you uh, uh, about this and uh, delving in and picking your brain. So uh, thanks for taking time away from your family and uh, that, that beautiful picture behind you uh, <laughs> uh, up in the Muskokas. Uh, go back, enjoy your, uh, your family and uh, your time off and uh, we'll catch up to you when you're back. Will do. It's been a pleasure, John. Thank you very much for your time as well. Again, a big thank you to Kevin McSweeney for being our guest today and sharing his insights on the current markets and his outlook going forward. Our next planned podcast will be for all those business owners who have a team, want to work less, while at the same time dialing up their business to be its very best. And yes, it can be done. And yes, you should do it. Make sure you listen in. It'll be a great segment. Ultimately, our goal is to educate and engage you, our audience. If you have any topics that you would like us to dive deeper into, please let us know. If you could take a minute to post a review, uh, that would be very much appreciated as well. If you would like to access other videos, podcasts, or articles we have done, visit us at Sauna Family Office Com. And for those of you who don't know the origin of the name Sauna Family Office, it stems from the meaning of Asante, which is Swahili for thank you. However, the most commonly spoken phrase in Swahili regarding Asante is Asante Sauna, which means thank you very much. This name represents the gratitude towards all of the families and business owners who have chosen our team as their trusted advisory council. Until next time, Asante Sana. Hi, I'm Trevor Beggs from Sana Family Office, and thanks for listening to John Lawson and the Wealth Wisdom Podcast. Here are the necessary disclosures. Asante Capital Management is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. This material is provided for general information and is subject to change without notice. Every effort has been made to compile this material from reliable sources. However, no warranty can be made as to its accuracy or completeness. 
Before acting on any of the above, please make sure to see a professional advisor for individual financial advice based on your personal circumstances. The opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of Asante Capital Management. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Wealth Wisdom Podcast.